Hello and welcome back everybody to Gimme the Creeps with Abby and Daniela. Hello. Okay, of course. I turned the fan off and now Sassy is woken up. <laughs> she said it's too hot in here. <laughs> Can you hear her? Yes. She's struggling. She said something's different. Yeah. Immediately, okay. her eyes shot open. <laughs> what the fuck? What happened to that? <laughs> she said it's so fucking hot in here. Just <laughs> immediately. <laughs> I'm telling you, dude. She said, I have hot flashes. She seriously does. Like, she gets hot real quick. Oh. She's crazy. How cute. My little <clears throat> baby. I know it. Um, so this week I was telling you earlier, I cheated a little bit and uh, I found an extremely good write-up of this case that I want to do. And it it's was on the uh, true crime subreddit on Reddit. Mm-hmm. But it's by Slinky Malinky97. And they posted it like two months ago, but I saved it because I really want to do this. So I'm just going to wonderful read that story. Sounds great. So I'm like watching Sassy's eyes, like, what are you gonna do, dude? <laughs> might hear her a little bit but oh well (laughs) (laughs) she said we're starting (laughs) yeah jesus as long as we don't fucking hear the other dogs start fucking whining because they want to go outside (laughs) and that would happen but here we go so i don't know if you've i don't know if you've heard of this girl but her name is Valerie Reyes. No? Uh, no. Uh-uh. Not immediately, okay. no. So Valerie Reyes was a 24-year-old woman living in New Rochelle in Westchester County, New York. She was born to Sal Reyes and Norma Sanchez and was one of four siblings with one older and two younger brothers. Valerie's mother described her daughter as a compassionate, intricate, and selfless young woman who worked hard to enjoy the good things in life. In fact, people only had amazing things to say about Valerie and what an honestly delightful, loving and kind-hearted woman she was. She attended New Rochelle High School and as an adult was working at a Barnes and Noble bookstore in East Chester, a job she loved, but she uh, was very creative and artistic and actually had ambitions to become a tattoo artist like one of her brothers. She even let her brother practice his designs on her when she was learning his when he was learning his new trade, which definitely takes a certain level of trust. Uh, that's funny because Jeremy's getting a tattoo machine. Oh, fun! Yeah, and he said that I can try it out too. So, <clears throat> but Ooh. yeah, I definitely wouldn't trust him to do it to do any Free tattoos hand. on me just now. <laughs> practice a little bit yeah i just i'm gonna give him some time 
<laughs> Valerie was a bit of a homebody. She loved to read, sing, draw portra- portraits of her friends, and take long nature walks around where she lived. The Reyes family were all incredibly close and supportive of each other, and Valerie was no exception. She was very family-oriented, and Sunday was a day she always looked forward to, as that was the day she would meet up with her mom and siblings, and they would play board games or go out to eat or to the park and just spend quality family time together. Although she had been afflicted with bouts of anxiety and depression during her life, Valerie was mostly a fairly upbeat girl, so it was greatly worrying to her mother, Norma, when on January 28, 2019, Valerie told her that she'd been getting anxiety attacks and that she was becoming scared and paranoid and was afraid someone was going to murder her. Can you fucking imagine? Mm -mm. That paranoia? Hell yeah. That's... mm. Valerie had broken up with her most recent boyfriend on January 24th, only four days before this conversation. So Norma asked whether something to do with this guy was making Valerie feel threatened, but Valerie said no, that it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with him. In fact, she wouldn't tell Norma anything more about what it actually was about and left her mother with a pile of unanswered questions, ones that she'd never get to ask again as that was the last time Norma Sanchez would ever speak to her daughter. Uh, Later that evening, Valerie made a phone call to her best friend of almost a decade. It's either Jeffrey or Joffrey Anderson. And this conversation also seemed to be mostly about Valerie's current anxieties. As Jeffrey said, he tried to talk her through her fears of being attacked before saying goodnight to her at half past 11. The next day was Tuesday, January 29th, and Valerie and Norma had had plans to go to Home Depot together. But Valerie never showed up and wasn't answering any of her mother's texts or calls. Norma assumed that Valerie was just overtired and needed to sleep, especially after being so upset the evening before. So she just let her daughter be. But it wasn't just Norma who Valerie was apparently ignoring, None of her friends or family heard anything from her that whole day. And while Valerie, or when Valerie then failed to show up to work the next day, that was the last drop for her family. Not only was it very unlike of her to not keep in regular contact with them, but it was unheard of for the very diligent and hardworking Valerie to ever not show at work like that. Especially mm-hmm. considering that Valerie had said only the day before about being scared someone was going to kill her, her family just knew that something was very wrong. So that morning, January 30th, her family filed a missing persons report with the new Rochelle police. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you is do you know this case now? No, but uh, I actually asked Hunter yesterday if I was like, how long would you wait? Uh, before reporting me missing because that's like something people always consider like if I should have reported sooner if you know they made me wait or whatever and he was like immediately and I was like really you wouldn't even like maybe think I was like just taking forever or I was mad or you know and he was like no I would probably just report you missing right away and I was like okay good well I feel like especially if he I mean y'all are both home all day right 
Right. So I feel like routine that is, is yeah. a big. <laughs> he would definitely be like, okay, she went to the store and she's not back. He's you gone forever. You actually, you know what? I actually do have a funny story from when we lived in Austin and I started working at that uh, Target in the area. Oh, sure. um, my phone had died and I... I don't remember if I stayed longer than I told him I was gonna or if he just expected me at a certain time and my phone, like he when he called, I didn't answer or what, but he called my store and my manager comes up to me and she's like, hey, somebody by the name of blah, blah, blah called and I was like, yeah, that's my husband and she's like, oh, and she looked at me like I, I hate... I hate to like put it this way because this is the case for some people, but she looked at me as if I was like an abuse victim or something. And my husband was like keeping tabs, you know? Oh shit. Cause I guess what? I was new and she didn't expect him to be so worried uh, that I wasn't answering or can you go get her? And also I guess it made him more paranoid because she told him, I can't tell you if they work here and I can't, you know, Oh, let you yeah. talk to them. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Because what yeah. if it's some rando that like saw me working and they saw my name tag or something? You know what I mean? Right. So uh, good on them. Loved loved that store. They have excellent uh, women that look out for each other there, obviously. But um, it was just like a weird thing because it made me kind of feel weird that she looked at me like that. And then also he was so worried so quickly. So it was like also well, good. Also new. I'm sure she was like. <laughs> it was just like a good feeling all around, weird. I guess. But it was also weird <laughs> yeah but anyways that's, 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 that was interesting. that's probably what i would have gone through my brain like is this motherfucker gonna call like every overthinking yeah is he stalking her like <laughs> is it an emergency <laughs> like i don't know but, but the way it was smart. handled was new was new to me and also him calling and being so worried was also new but it was nice so i love oh. him <laughs> i love him for that <laughs> oh that's cute Thanks. um So one of the first things police did was search Valerie's apartment. And there were no obvious indications that a struggle had happened there, but forensic analysis was able to identify small amounts of blood in various places, a small blood stain on Valerie's pillow, two mm-hmm. small stains on the bathroom floor, and another one on the toilet. But these were very small amounts and they weren't especially informative. Hmm. Police also identified a number of items that were missing from Valerie's apartment, including her iPhone, her iPad, her wallet, and several items of clothing and bedding. These could suggest that Valerie had left of her own accord and so had packed some of her stuff to take with her. But her family and friends were insistent that she would not have just disappeared on her own with no contact. And that, combined with Valerie's recent concerns that someone had wanted to kill her, led police to believe that foul play was involved. So an immediate person of interest was the boyfriend who Valerie had just broken up with, as he could potentially have a strong motive to hurt her, uh, depending on how he took this breakup. But he was fairly quickly ruled out as a suspect and actually took on a significant role in the search for Valerie. The police were looking everywhere in New Rochelle and New York City with no luck. And so they turned to the public for help, making sure pictures of Valerie and descriptions of the outfit she was last seen in, which was a green coat, black jeans, and black shoes, were all over their social media. However, 
there were not really any proper leads until a week later on February 5th. It was half past eight in the morning and a group of highway workers were on a route, a routine sweep of a public road in Greenwich, Connecticut, about 15 miles from Valerie's apartment. One of the workers noticed a suspicious red suitcase about 15 to 20 feet away from the road in the wooded area that ran alongside it. So one of the one of the workers approached the suitcase, opened the or unzipped it and then actually vomited from the foul smell that mm. came out. Immediately they called the police without even checking anything more. So when the police arrived, they discovered the suitcase contained the dead body of a young woman, which was confirmed two days later to be that of 24-year-old Valerie Reyes. Valerie mm-hmm. was wearing jeans and an unbuttoned shirt and was barefoot. Her knees and ankles were bound with a combination of white twine and packing tape. Her wrists were tied behind her back and she had more packing tape wrapped all around her mouth and chin and multiple layers. As it had been there for two weeks, her body was starting to show the early signs of decomposition with her hands and feet appearing rather mottled. She had a multitude of injuries around her head and face, including a cracked skull, a broken nose, fractured cheekbones, and a large hematoma. It looked like she had been badly beaten with what was believed to be just her attacker's fists. <sighs> How, yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, however, her official cause of death was ruled to be homicidal asphyxiation. The tape around her mouth and the injuries to her face would have made it more difficult for her to breathe anyway. And then being trapped in this suitcase that she only just fit inside would have virtually cut off her air supply and considering the manner in which she was found and that the location was not particularly secluded police were able to determine that valerie had been killed or gravely wounded elsewhere before her body was moved to connecticut afterwards but who had done this and why The case was racked with more immediate drama when another one of the road workers who discovered Valerie's body, a man called James Clifford, began being investigated for taking and sharing photos of the body and the crime scene that he'd taken with his phone. Can you fucking imagine? This is like the man or the worker that um, took pictures of the Kobe Bryant uh, helicopter. Oh my god. Ugh, disgusting. It is incredible. She, his wife sued, I think, right? Yes, yeah, she did. Mm-hmm. Good. That's horrible. Yeah, she sued the sheriff's department because I think it was a deputy. Or oh my gosh. Yeah, oh, I remember that. So, which I guess I am attributed to the problem because I fucking follow a subreddit that posts pictures like gore like that. So clearly I'm one of the people that want to see it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in general, the true crime community can fall under all kinds of, you know, negative For sure. scrutiny. But in general, I mean, as long as it's respectfully 
I don't know. I guess I get what you mean. Like we love the gore. We love the details, um, which a lot of people out of respect for family, especially if it's like a child victim or something, won't share those details. But yeah. people like us are so interested in like, were they molested? Were they, <laughs> I don't know. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a it touchy is, subject. Yeah, for sure. The fascination with it, I guess, could, could be kind of toxic, but at the same time, it's not blatant out of disrespect, I guess. Right. And here we go. I'm going to fucking describe the the photo, but this photo (laughs) showed Valerie still bound and with an obvious gash to her head and was considered a clear breach of privacy, both for her and the investigation. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last thing Valerie's family needed at this time was to be exposed to gruesome shots of their loved one. Right. uh, Being casually aired around to everyone Clifford knew. However, one of these acquaintances he showed the photo to, a Connecticut business owner, then decided to show this photo to a media outlet, the Mm. Journal News, and tell them all about where he'd gotten it from. So James Clifford was investigated by his department, but he ended up not receiving any criminal er, convictions and instead a fairly light sanction including a brief suspension and being made to attend sensitivity training. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, due to the fact that this case took place in two different states, the FBI was quickly called in to help with the investigation. So at 5 a.m. on January 29th, a few hours after Valerie was last seen, her debit card was used at a bank in New Rochelle, to withdraw a thousand dollars from her account the surveillance footage from in and around the bank was looked at and showed a man wearing a black sweater and trousers and black adidas trainers with white soles and with his hood pulled up to hide his face this man parked his car a black honda opposite the bank entered the building withdrew the money from an atm and then returned to the honda and drove away an hour and a half later, his Honda was spotted again on CCTV at a new Rochelle intersection, and the license plates and the license plate was recorded. When police tracked down this license plate number, they found his Honda was registered to a car rental company in an area called Flushing in Queens, New York City. And we all know Flushing from the nanny. <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> this car had been rented from January 28th to the 29th, so only for around the time when Valerie disappeared. The person it was officially rented to was quickly rolled out, but he was not the only person who could have driven it. Customers could add other authorized drivers to their account in a kind of car sharing scheme. And one of these authorized drivers for this Honda was a man called Javier da Silva Rojas. Mm-hmm. So when police had interviewed Valerie's friends and family, they had learned of the existence of a man named Javier, who Valerie had dated briefly in 2018, but who she had broken up with almost a year before this case happened. So Valerie and Javier had met through a dating website and gone out for three months before Valerie ended their relationship in April 2008. 
As was previously mentioned, this was almost a year before Valerie's death, so this Javier did not strike police as an immediate person of interest in the same way that her most recent ex had. Mm. But now, when police were looking at the full name of Javier de Silva Rojas online and finding his social media accounts, they discovered his profile picture exactly matched a drawing that had been found in Valerie's apartment, confirming that he was indeed Valerie's ex-boyfriend. But why was her ex of almost a year using Valerie's bank card to withdraw her money in the middle of the night a few hours after she was last seen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Javier's address was registered at a condo in Flushing, and police checked it out, went to check it out on CCTV. They saw that on January 28th, at 10.50 p.m., Javier was had left his apartment or had left the condo wearing the exact same outfit, all black with the same trainers and hood that the man on CCTV using Valerie's bank card had worn, confirming that it was most likely him on the tape. Then the next day at 9.45 a.m., Javier returns to his condo, but this time he was wearing a long tan-colored coat and was carrying a duffel bag. Several minutes later, he left home again, this time without the duffel bag. So Javier had not been at home at the time when Valerie was attacked. He could be identified as having used her bank card hours before she was even known to be missing and had returned home in a different outfit, suggesting he'd got rid of the clothes he'd been wearing a few hours previously. All of this was clearly suspicious. So... On February 6th, the day after Valerie's body had been discovered, Javier went back to the car rental company in Flushing and rented out the same Honda that he'd used before. (laughs) Google location data showed a large cluster of Wi-Fi hits on Javier's phone at a car wash in the Bronx. So he uh, re-rented this Honda and had it thoroughly and professionally cleaned, and then returned it to the rental company later that day. Oh, my God. Yeah. Why would anyone pay to rent out a car yeah. and then have it cleaned when it's so not suspicious. their car? And you're just going to return it right after. Yep. Like, mm-hmm. And the obvious answer is get rid of any evidence that might be in that car. Mm-hmm. Um. So, again, very suspicious, but still not irrefutable evidence that Javier was was responsible for Valerie's death. So, on February 11th, police from from both the the Greenwich and New Rochelle departments arrested Javier on charges of larceny for his use of Valerie's bank card, a charge that they could prove with their existing evidence. This arrest enabled them to not only interrogate him, but also get a search warrant for his apartment where they found Valerie's driver's license and bank card and Javier's wallet, which obviously he wasn't supposed to have. Yeah. Um, oh my goodness. Excuse me. I didn't even drink a Red Bull. I'm still. Phantom burps. <laughs> so a little background about Javier De Silva. Uh, Rojas. He was also 24 at the time of this case. Uh, There's not a lot of available information about his background, but he was from what is apparently a comfortable suburban area in Caracas, the capital of Venezuela. 
and he had dual citizenship for both Venezuela and Portugal. He studied journalism at the Universidad Católica Santa Rosa before moving to the U.S. in 2017. Uh, Javier was partaking in a special visa waiver scheme where people from a certain list of countries could come and stay in the U.S. for up to 90 days without a visa. But when his time came to an end, Javier just didn't leave. <laughs> Which... I'm sure a lot, that happens a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at this time, Venezuela was going through some serious political and economic turmoil with a lot of shortages uh, and a lot of unemployment and a lot of intense protest. So Javier was one of the many Venezuelans who wanted to escape this de deteriorating situation. And once in the U.S., Javier set up home in Flushing in New York, where he worked first for a cleaning company and then a coffee shop as a barista. Uh, he spent a lot of time traveling around New York, Washington, D.C., and South America, and was very into nature and travel photography. He had a moderately large following on social media, especially Instagram. Uh, for the most part, people spoke very highly of Javier, saying that he was very thoughtful and kind. And one of his former university friends even said he tried to help her get cancer treatment in the U.S. Wow. Okay, but clearly he is also a psycho, so. Yeah, you can be both. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, wasn't Ted Bundy that? Ew, yeah. Didn't they say that? I think so. He was like a... Um... Not a, was he a psychopath? He was like a sociopath and a Narcissist. that's part of it, like being charming and yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, uh, however, one person who was less of a fan of Javier's even before this happened, uh, was Valerie's mother, Norma, who saw a rather different side of him. According to Norma, Javier was rather manipulative and controlling and would not take no for an answer. Uh, when they were dating, he had told Valerie that his mother was dying of cancer in Venezuela, and it's unclear if that was true or not, uh, but this led Valerie to feel very protective of him. To Norma, this was just Javier trying to manipulate kind-hearted Valerie into feeling sorry for him so she would spend more time with him, and, uh, oh, okay, wait, so she could spend more time with him and basically make her more pliable for him. But it became clear fairly quickly to Valerie that Javier was way more invested in their relationship than she was, and this started to cause some real tension between the two of them. They only dated for three months. Like, that's intense. Yeah, which is a, a flag right there. That's yeah. That's a how intense he's flag. trying to be. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, he wanted something far more serious than she was ready for at that time in her life, which is perfectly valid. But when Valerie decided to break up with Javier, he did not take it well at all and be and became quite combative to the point where Valerie decided to just block him on every platform. Uh -oh. um, Javier was really destroyed by this. And even months later in September, they had broken up in April, uh, he was still finding excuses, excuses to try and contact her. One time, he messaged her saying that he'd mistakenly used her debit card information and wanted to reimburse her. Uh, no. Yeah, like, first of all, like, I mean, I get it. Like, they, like, shared, like, a 
I mean, it was only three months, but if he's that crazy, like if they shared like an Amazon account or something and oh, like, I see. Or like if she used one of his accounts for something, you know, like, or like a Uber Eats or some shit. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I could think of because why the fuck? Uh, yeah, true. Usually you can just take that, take care of it without bothering them. Right. Uh, but Valerie refused to communicate with him except through friends as proxies. Texting said friend that she didn't want to talk to or have anything else to do with Javier. After this, he finally seemed to get the message and left Valerie alone. Or so it seemed. Mm-mm-mm. The day after Javier's arrest, the police began their interrogation. He was not very honest and gave a whole succession of unbelievable explanations for his behavior. Initially, he said that he had found Valerie's wallet on the street while bar hopping in <laughs> Manhattan. He said that there was a scrap of paper with the card's pin tucked inside the wallet, which was how he was able to withdraw money using that card. He also said that he had not been to New Rochelle or Connecticut in over a year and that he hadn't seen Valerie since early 2018, all of which could be proven wrong very easily with phone and location data. He's a fucking... He's an idiot. Yeah, who the fuck? Not, like, not I'm just familiar with true crime basics, are we? Like, I just <laughs> happen to be har- bar hopping in fucking Manhattan. Wow, what a coincidence. And like, uh, what the fuck? You're like, hey, I know whose wallet this is. Let me just keep it for safekeeping. And let me just take out money because the pin. She won't mind. Like, oh, my God. A thousand dollars. Like, They won't mind. I know, right? I just, mm-mm. It doesn't even, even if he would have taken out a dollar, like, what the fuck? Yeah, for real. Eventually, Javier admits that he had driven his rental car to New Rochelle that evening of the 28th, but insisted that he was so drunk that he'd blacked out so he couldn't remember anything else from that night. So the police questioned him some more and even showed him photos of Valerie's dead body, after which Javier changed his story again and tried to tell them that it had all just been a terrible accident. Ugh, there it is. So his new story was that he had visited Valerie at her apartment on the night of January 28th. Despite them not having been together for more than nine months, he claimed the two of them had sex, during which Valerie had fallen and hit her head. (laughs) Mm-mm. Javier had then panicked, thinking that Valerie had died and that he was going to be blamed for it. So so he tied her up with tape and twine that he found in her apartment to mm-hmm. make her more compact. He put tape over her mouth so she wouldn't be able to scream. And then he put her in the suitcase, which was one that the two of them had used for a holiday that they'd taken when they were a couple. And then they, and then he drove around with it for a while before dropping it off at a random roadside in Greenwich where, where she was found. I think I said this in the case with, um, what was her name that was found in the suitcase? Oh, Arsolia. Yes. Um, that he used things in her apartment to like tie her up 
And yeah, like her son's it. hockey bag. and It freaks me out that she literally just went about her day. Like, I'm going to go, like, I don't know. It reminds me of, like, a fucking Netflix, like, true crime episode where, like. Oh, the where girl, they set it up. Yeah, like, how they set up her, like, going to buy the tape and the twine. Yeah. And she just throws it in the bag, not knowing that, like, months It'll later. It'll be used for be tied up with it. Or she's like that morning, she's like, oh, I need to organize this closet. Let me get all this luggage out. Oh, my God. And then she ends up in the freaking suitcase later. That is so terrifying. I know. So he had then thrown her phone off of Whitestone Bridge before returning to his apartment where he decided to keep her Kindle and one of her pillows. (laughs) Wow. But this story... Still didn't add up for a lot of reasons. Firstly, Valerie had wanted nothing to do with him. And so if he had just randomly turned up on her doorstep at midnight, would she have really invited him in for sex? Like, especially considering her mental state and anxiety leading up to this day? No, probably not. Definitely not. Um, secondly, if he genuinely believed he killed her, then why would he be worried about her screaming? Oh, if it was accidental, yeah. Yeah, like, to the extent that he would put tape over her mouth in multiple layers, like... Just in case. (laughs) Thirdly, Valerie's injuries were just not consistent with the story. If she had really just fallen and knocked her head, then why did her face have so many bruises and fractures? He beat her in the face, like... yeah. And repeatedly. so, repeatedly, huh? I said repeatedly if they could tell that it was fists. Yeah. That means there was like knuckle bruising. Yeah. Um, so, when the police asked him why, like, what the, like, all of these questions, he was like unable to explain any of these inconsistencies and just blamed it on his panic state at the time for all of this bizarre and sketchy behavior. Mm-hmm. So, now that he was arrested, his phone and location history were thoroughly examined and his DNA was taken. And the results of these just undermined his story even more. A few days before Valerie's disappearance, Javier had texted a woman he appeared to be in a romantic relationship with that he said, quote, I just found my ex fucking in my bed with the guy next door in New Rochelle on December after years, end quote. (laughs) Like, so why would Javier have been apparently outside his ex's house around 15 miles from where he lived months after they had ceased contact? Mm -hmm. Like, he had been stalking Valerie since she wouldn't let him back into her life. Yeah. And so he was clearly still very angry with her. And the fact that he describes it as them being in his bed when he didn't even live there Mm -hmm. suggests that he still was very possessive over Valerie and that he was entitled to a relationship with her. Wow. So seeing Valerie with a new partner may have caused Javier to become deeply jealous and put him into a mental state of, I can't, if I can't have her, then no one can. Mm Mm-hmm. I just, like, he literally was stalking her and seeing her with her new boyfriend 
It's so disturbing. Yeah. Like he literally was outside the window as they were fucking in her bed. Like he mm-hmm. said it was his and that's just so disturbing. And that just completely, he flew over the edge with that rage. Right. Mm. Or, or I guess he looked at it as now I have a reason to hurt her or confront her. Yes. So when Javier left his condo in the evening of the 28th, when he was caught on CCTV in the all black outfit, he got in the rental Honda and used Google Maps on his phone to find the directions to a church in New Rochelle that was less than a mile away from Valerie's apartment. Javier then drove to New Rochelle and just after midnight, his phone location data showed that he was only 200 feet from Valerie's home. After that, he switched his phone to airplane mode in in an attempt to conceal his presence. Um, So why would he feel the need to do that unless he was planning on doing something he shouldn't, right? Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So it's unknown whether Valerie invited him into her apartment like he 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 said Mm. um, or if he had forced his way in, which Mm -hmm. I feel like he force his way in but traces of javier's dna were found on both a breast swab and a genital swab taken from valerie so this would suggest that they had some kind of sexual contact though probably non-consensual on Mm -hmm. valerie's part like he tried to claim right they also found his dna on the handles of the suitcase and under valerie's fingernails which backs up the idea that they had some kind of physical physical altercation where Mm -hmm. she fought with him and tried to defend herself. Mm. So he and Valerie had an argument that resulted in Javier attacking Valerie, beating her up, tying her up with the combination of tape and twine he found in her apartment, then putting her in the suitcase and the suitcase in his car. Valerie was still alive at this time. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, that is terrifying. Like, you know you're going to die in that suitcase. You can feel yourself running out of oxygen. and yes. Can't move. It's horrible. Hopefully so she scary. just went to sleep. Like hopefully the pain was just so crazy she just passed yeah. out. And mm-hmm. oh my god. Um he potentially then cleaned up the crime scene, which could be why there was so little evidence found there. Uh three hours later, Valerie's phone stopped pinging telecom towers, indicating that her phone had also been placed in airplane mode. Around the same time, Javier used Valerie's phone to go through all the contents of her iCloud, including all of her notes, her photos, and her browsing and location history. He sat there doing this for well over an hour while Valerie was trapped inside his car in the suitcase. According to the pre-sentencing letter from the prosecution, after he'd thoroughly gone through her phone... Javier then logged into Valerie's banking app using her thumbprint to check her account balance. This Evil. suggests he opened the ca- the suitcase just enough to retrieve one of her hands and used her thumb to unlock the app. And Evil. then presumably retied her or at least rearranged her back in the case and then zipped it back up as she had been found with her hands bound behind her back. Mm-hmm. So, um, was she already dead at this time when he's borrowing her body parts to try and steal her money? Mm-hmm. I don't think he realized or cared either way. 
But after checking her balance, he went to the bank and withdrew the $1,000 that got caught in CCTV. Um, about half past 6 a.m., Javier's phone started pinging towers again, a whole succession of them miles apart from each other. He seemed to go through much of New York State to Connecticut, back to New Rochelle, and then back to Connecticut again. He seemed to be driving at random, possibly trying to find the ideal spot to dump the suitcase. Finally, he stopped in Greenwich, where he abandoned Valerie's body on the side of the road, where it could be found two weeks later. It wasn't until he had returned to Queens um, that Javier turned his location services back on again, presumably, presumably as he no longer felt the need to hide his presence. So over the next couple of days, Javier used Valerie's bank card multiple times, withdrawing a total of $5,350 from her account, pretty much wow. draining it. God, I wish I had that much in my account. <laughs> he previously stated that police had identified a number of items missing. Oh, as previously stated. Did I say he? What the fuck? As previously stated, the police had identified a number of items missing from Valerie's apartment, including her phone, iPad, wallet, and bedding. The missing bedding could have been used to contain or clean up any blood and mess created during the crime and then might have been disposed of afterwards. We already know Javier had been the one to take the phone and wallet and had later disposed of them. He'd also taken one of her pillows just to keep, but he had also been the one to steal the iPad, which he then traded online <laughs> at a marketplace for an Apple monitor and a laptop. Wow. He then took a photo of himself with this new monitor to show it off and the new laptop, and told his roommate that he had just found these items. What the heck? Like, you've just killed a woman who presumably at one you one point at one point cared for, and now you're selling her stuff to get new shit so you could show and, it off. And like, boasting, yeah. Ew. And there is a photo of it that oh my I will, God. we'll post on Instagram. At least he's leaving breadcrumbs for the crime. Yeah, he's a fucking idiot. And the face he's making mm -hmm. it is just... Douche. Yeah. So faced with all of this evidence, Javier broke down and finally admitted to killing Valerie. They had got into an argument while he was at her apartment that led to him repeatedly punching her in the head. And he knew that she was still alive when he put her in the case. Once he had admitted to the crime, Javier seemed to become very emotional about it. Some might even say remorseful. Oh, God. He cried through many of his interviews and court appearances, constantly apologizing and insisting he hadn't actually intended to kill Valerie and had, in fact, tried to revive her multiple times. <laughs> mm -mm. During one jailhouse interview, he said, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what happened. I didn't mean to do it. I'm a bad person. She wasn't responding. I went and put my mouth on her mouth. I tried to put air in. When he asked about... When he was asked... If Valerie had been bleeding, he just whimpered and cried some more, saying again, I'm a bad person. I did something wrong. I didn't call the police because he said I thought they would blame me. He then said he drove around with her body, not knowing where he was going. And when he returned to Queens, he was pretty much just uh, bidding time, waiting to be caught, and even claimed he withdrew the, crash, the cash from Valerie's account to deliberately draw police attention to himself. Get the fuck out of here. Hmm. 
So Javier was charged with one count of kidnapping resulting in death. He went to trial and was found guilty and he could potentially face life in prison or the death penalty. But this case took a long time to go to trial, partly as it had to go to federal court as the crime had taken place in two states, but mainly because Javier's defense team kept trying to negotiate a plea deal for him, one that would get the death penalty taken off the table. His defense attorneys, the public defender team of Mark DeMarco <laughs> and Jason Scher tried to lessen Javier's potential sentence by portraying him as an otherwise decent man with no criminal, with no criminal, criminal. <laughs> <laughs> you got me the second time. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck my brain was trying to do there. Criminal. <laughs> Chemical and criminal together. It reminds I, I get me it. of Alice in Wonderland when she's fucking trying to say... <laughs> What is she trying to say explicitly? No. <laughs> I don't know what we're just trying to say, but that's exactly what just happened. <laughs> Adorable. Okay, where was I? With no criminal... Criminal, I still wanted to do it again. <laughs> I heard that. With no criminal record and a great reputation among those who knew him, but who had been forced to drop out of college and flee his home in Venezuela with only $600 to his name. In the time he'd been living in the U.S., he had kept his head down, working hard, and being an otherwise model citizen. Though they didn't try to excuse the severity of his crime, they did attempt to make allowances for Javier by saying such a violent act was a result of him succumbing to stress, exacerbated by being separated from his family, and by an emerging drug habit. Okay, you are a fucking idiot. Like, why would you use... He started spiraling. They refer to him as a broken man, someone who is sincerely sorry for his actions and understands the horrific nature of his conduct. Boo-hoo. Eventually, a plea deal was reached, and on February 5th, 2020, Javier de Silva Rojas pled guilty to the charge of the kidnapping resulting in the death of Valerie Reyes and was sentenced to 30 years in jail, plus two years of supervised probation. In White Plains Federal Court, Judge Vincent Bersetti called it brutal, a brutal, callous, cruel crime. Valerie's mother, Norma, gave an impact statement at the, sentence, at the, at the sentencing saying, you deserve nothing but pain and rejection. I want you to hear the words of a mother who... You devastated by taking away my baby girl. To which Javier apologized, saying, No words can express how repulsed I am by what I did. I will never forgive myself. I cannot ask you to forgive me because I don't deserve it. I would like you to know I'm very sorry. When he is released from prison, Javier will only be 55 years old, although ICE has indicated that he will likely be deported back to Venezuela once his sentence is over. Likely, like, uh, no, you need to very make sure that that happens. Yeah. So while Javier may very well feel may feel remorseful for Valerie's death, it's still hard to accept everything he said about this case. If it really had been, uh, if not an accident, that at least a crime of passion, he hadn't premeditated, then why did he switch his phone to airplane mode before going in? It was midnight. He probably wasn't going to get any calls or interruptions. 
personally oh okay well this is the thoughts of um the person that wrote this but they said personally i believe javier was furious at valerie for moving on from him while the plan might not have been to kill her i believe he did go there intending to cause her harm essentially punish her for daring to leave him like either way he even like even if it I just don't understand why he wasn't charged with more yeah like, just 55 years like mm-hmm. or he got 30 years that was it like just 30 years I know when he it gets out like even when he goes back to Venezuela like he's 55 he can still live his life for a while after that you know what i mean yeah all the despicable things that he did along the way whether they were conscious decisions to hide the crime or conscious decisions to get caught either way they were still like despicable actions and uh for that alone it could have been like life prison word gross well freaking crazy (sighs) but that was the very sad um, murder of Valerie Reyes. Mm. Yeah, just really sad. Domestic violence, stalking, so bad. Right. She did everything she knew. Like within three months, she was like, this is not going to go right. well. This is not really cool. I don't like this. Let me go ahead and put my boundaries down. She did uh, some responsible things too, like telling family and friends. Uh, I don't want to talk to this guy. If he tries to talk to me, I don't want to talk to him. So, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of times, you know, we, we want to like keep it a secret or handle it on our own because it's like embarrassing or drama or whatever. But right. you have to be smart about this kind of stuff because mm-hmm. at least he'll get caught. You don't want anyone killed or hurt or abused, but it can escalate, you know, if you don't take the right steps. So it's very sad that the situation did not end differently for her, for Valerie, but she did take all of those steps. So I do commend her for that. Yes. Man. And she fought too. She sure did. She sure fucking did. I kind of feel like she might've been willing to sit and talk, but at the point where she said, all right, you got to leave. That's when it all popped off. Mm -hmm. Horrible. Well, that was an excellent Reddit true crime story thank you so much for sharing that that was a great Mm. write-up excellent all right well guys make sure you join us next week for another episode of gimme the creeps with abby and daniela go ahead and give us a follow over on instagram and twitter and on tiktok and make sure you tell your family and friends to get some stories together so that you can dm them and we can read them on our podcast thank you guys for listening so did we give you the creeps?